Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. We are now back from our summer break and it is the 2nd of September 2019 and this is episode 126. On today's programme, I talked to Dr Chris Kempshaw from the University of Sussex about his 2015 book on the First World War and computer games. I spoke to Chris from his home in Canterbury. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Now, this today we're going to talk about computer games uh, that feature World War One. But before you start telling us about that, can you tell us about yourself and how you became interested in computer games that involve World War One? Firstly, welcome back. Uh, I'd say welcome back. Thank you for having me back. We've we've shifted a little bit from from allied relations to to computer games. In regards to um, how I became interested in computer games, I'm going to give you the like the official professional answer. And then I'm going to give you the, the slightly more accurate personal one. And the official professional one is I was at a um, professorial lecture by a, an old colleague for at Sussex called uh, Professor Lucy Robinson recently. And she was quoting another member of staff who'd worked at the University of Sussex but had passed away uh, recently, who was her PhD supervisor, a guy called Alan Hawkins. And the quote that she attributed to him is was that um, if it matters to people, it should matter to historians. And I think that plays very nicely with an examination of uh, things like first world computer games, because computer games have clearly got a big audience. Historical computer games obviously have a very, very dedicated audience. And if these types of representation of war matter to people, then they should absolutely matter to historians. Now, probably slightly more accurate personal answer is that I'm a enormous geek. And I like playing computer games. I have an interest in playing computer games and historical computer games and computer games of all kind of types. And the opportunity to then actually kind of turn element of hobby into element of job was so pleasing that it was just far too good to turn down when the opportunity arose. So that's kind of where it comes from, from my point of view. It evolved out of a conference paper. Then I got asked to turn it into a book. And then got asked to turn it into kind of journal articles and it kind of snowballed from there but the likelihood of me ever turning down the possibility to talk in a professional setting about first world war computer games it was it was something i was never ever going to allow to pass chris can you tell us about the games that use the first world war as a genre and how they represent the conflict and what exactly do you do in them um as a person in a first world war setting it kind of depends almost on the kind of the time point that you're looking at so when first world war computer games begin to emerge they are almost universally first uh flight simulator games you know you climb into a little wire model plane and you shoot down other wire model planes and, and that's that's the game and then they kind of evolved out of that into uh things like strategy games uh you get a lot of kind of modding groups which is uh, kind of groups of ordinary people who take an existing game and uh, that may be set on like the second world war or there's one that's set in um napoleonic times and kind of change the setting change the models change the armies and like until it's a first world war setting and for a while that was kind of the the totality of games uh, that focused on the First World War, partially for technological issues. Um, if you're creating a, a computer game, it's a flight simulator, you don't really need much more than a little wine model plane. You don't need to create like images of the pilots and the ground and the, the whole environment. It can be a very kind of easy game to, to create, which is particularly useful kind of back in the 1980s when computing power wasn't particularly strong. When it comes to strategy games, what they kind of tended to do 
was um, appeal to the kind of the the ego, the intellectual ego of the player. So it effectively set up a, a situation kind of where the game says, first world war generals or idiots. We all know that it's in our culture. We understand that, you know, lines led by donkeys and like they fought the first world war wrong. Are you smart enough to fight the first world war right? Can you solve a problem like the Western Front? And by doing that and kind of creating that aspect, the player fills in a lot of the blanks themselves. So again, the game doesn't need to go to any great lengths to explain why the world's at war or explain you kind know, of grand allied strategy or anything like that, because the player's going to do it. The player will create their own first world war based off of the kind of the limited tools at hand. And for years and years and years, that was kind of it, really, largely because it was thought that the first world war was too dull, uh, too boring to play in any other way. No one's going to want to play. I don't know, Trench Simulator 2014, where you climb out of the trenches and then get shot immediately and it's game over. No one's going to want to do that. It's not going to be any fun, was the kind of the overarching belief. And it's only when we reach the centenary period, and that's immediately before the centenary, that actually that begins to get challenged with new games coming out that kind of try and introduce a narrative to the First World War, or say that actually people will play Trench Simulator 2014. They will be interested in taking a bolt-action rifle and going over the top and maybe getting shot but maybe shooting somebody else. And then it becomes a kind of a, a matter of skill that there is a core group of people who will want to play games like that. And that kind of begins to emerge in and around the the, the, the centenary period. So two types of games that I know have emerged featuring the First World War. First, firstly, what we called first-person shooters and secondly, narrative games. Can you tell us about how the First World War has been used in both of those? Yeah, when it comes to first-person shooters, the, again, this kind of the spectre of it's not going to be any fun cast a long shadow over uh, this genre but what it then began to emerge is actually if you make it a challenge people will play it so um one of the games that emerged before the centenary is a game called uh, verdun uh, in 1914-1918 i think it's called and it's effectively uh, an online first person shooter game so you have groups of people up to like 32 or maybe 64 groups of people on a map some of them playing entente nations some of them playing central powers and the battle goes backwards and forwards for about 45 minutes you get shot a lot you die a lot but if you shoot someone generally one shot kills and the kind of the, the game evolves out of out of that now this is kind of almost like a starting point for first world war first person shooters but actually it's building on a a genre of first person shooters that already existed so games like operation flashpoint that appeared in i think it's a kind of late 90s early 2000s i'm pretty sure it was designed by some guys who'd served in the russian or soviet military um as a kind of a campaign single player but also with an online element where it's exactly the same thing one shot and you're dead and that'll be the end of the game people liked the challenge they really like the fact that now it's, it becomes about skill. It's not simply running around with a submachine gun, hosing down corridors and stuff like that. Verdun proved that people would play games set in the First World War in first-person shooter modes. The second part of your question about kind of narrative games kind of ties into a fact that other war games that had elements of narrative weren't working anymore. For years and years and years, Call of Duty, um, Medal of Honor, um, Battlefield had dominated the kind of historical and contemporary conflict first world uh, first person shooter um, game but they were experiencing the kind of law of diminishing returns so they'd done the second world war and mined it to death effectively there's only so long you can reenact saving private ryan or enemy at the gates before you start to run out of stories that you want to tell so they've gone uh, call of duty gone into modern warfare which was effectively set in kind of iraq and afghanistan battlefield had done something similar and then they start going forward further and further and further in time until you end up with i think it's 
Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, um, which uh, features the guy who played Jon Snow from Game of Thrones, but set in space. And no one liked it because it's a game starring the guy who played Jon Snow from Game of Thrones and it's set in space. And there was nothing to connect you to. Who cares if you, you know, kill an enemy that is part of a, a futuristic faction that you don't know anything about? There was nothing that you could root players in. So a lot of these games start looking around for um, stories. Is there somewhere else we can set our, set our games? Are there stories to be told? And at the same time this is going on, you get a game coming out of Ubisoft called Valiant Hearts, The Great War, which is a narrative kind of adventure puzzle solving game set in the First World War, largely revolving around the French and German armies, where you travel around as a variety of different characters, one a, a French soldier called Emile, um, one a German soldier who's married to Emile's son. Uh, there's a there's an African-American soldier called Freddy who uh, fights with the French army. There's a, a woman called Anna who's a veterinarian, but also a nurse. And there's a small um, a small dog called Walt. And you you control all of these characters as you kind of travel around the Western Front from kind of 1914 to 1918, interacting with the wider story. So you're at the Somme, you're at Verdun, you're at Vimy Ridge. You, uh, you interact with this wider narrative and tell stories, including things like the French Mutiny in 1917. And people loved it. It was a really... It's a, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful game. I love it to bits. And people really, really enjoyed it. And I've been saying for some time that because Valiant Heart showed that there were stories to be told and Verdun proved that there was an audience who play First World War first-person shooters, that Verdun plus Valiant Heart equaled Battlefield 1, which then came out in 2016 and was an enormous commercial success and probably the biggest mainstream game ever set in the first world war it sold by i think by 2017 2018 it sold over 15 million copies that's going to be far more copies than any, uh, anything else has ever sold it's going to be an even bigger number now i would imagine because they carried on releasing downloadable content in 2017 and 2018 and like and as a result battlefield one is probably the most successful media about the first world war maybe that's ever existed and it's set in computer games but it's a uh, it's a battlefield version of the First World War. So it is running around with a submachine gun. It is hosing down people in corridors. It is, I've been shot 17 times. It's all right. I'm just going to stand behind this barrel for five seconds and then, you know, walk it off. So it's, it's, it's a slightly more arcadey version of the First World War. But I, I genuinely don't think it comes to exist if the groundwork hasn't been laid for it beforehand. So what issues do you think arise about using first, the First World War as a setting or a genre in computer games? There were a few, and it kind of depends on the nature of the game, and it kind of depends on the nature of the audience. So I think the First World War works as a setting for games set in it, because people know about the First World War, but they don't really. If you were to ask people kind of, and I'm very much aware this is a, obviously a podcast for the Western Front Association, so I'm not necessarily including the members in this, but I would, I would hazard a guess that most people, average person walking on the street, don't really know how the First World War ended, don't really know, you know what the strategies were, what the battles, the, the point of them were, even why the war necessarily started. What we have are very enduring images of the First World War, things like Dan Todman and Gordon Corrigan and, and Gary Sheffield have spoken about, kind of, you know, the mud, the blood, etc., uh, the, the, the despair, um, as Blackadder would say, the endless poetry. So what that means is you have an audience that is aware of the time period, but unaware of the details. Now, this is a, can be a very, very good thing because it allows you to tell stories that surprise the audience. What the counter aspect to that is, are these games actually shifting this structure, this image of the war at all? And genuinely, probably not. 
for some of them, that they rely on the shared memory of the audience, because it's the same by the same token, they rely on the shared memory of the developers. A lot of the developers have an interest in the First World War. Some of them would you know, describe themselves as history buffs, but whether or not they've kind of spent years going through the historiography to understand the changing nature of how we understand the war, probably not, because outside of you know, academics and members of the Western Front Association, who's going to do that? You know, spend 10, 15 years understanding how the First World War has evolved. Other issues that come from it is that some of these myths end up getting kind of reinforced. So you don't see a lot about things like, why does the war start? What you end up with is a version, effectively, of the Christopher Clarke thesis of everyone kind of, the, the great powers of Europe woke up one day, fell down the stairs, crashed into each other, and there was a war at the end of it. It's also generally portrayed as being an incredibly white European war. You don't see a lot about empire in there. You don't see a lot about colonial soldiers or the realities of treatment of colonial soldiers or the, the reality of what it meant to, to exist inside the British Empire. Um, I think that's probably because computer games just don't want to get into it. They, you know, if, you, if you start introducing elements of empire, then at some level you're actually going to have to interact with the realities of it. And I think computer games, you know, actually fairly understandably kind of put their hands up and go, this isn't, this isn't for us to sort, this isn't for us to, to, to get too deeply involved in. Um, that's the job of historians and society. What it becomes slightly odd is the level to which um, the audience push back against certain things. So there's, a, there's, as I said earlier, there's loads and loads of flight simulator games, and they're all called equally ridiculous things like the Red Baron or Knights of the Air or Chivalrous Pilots Are Us or, or something along those lines. Now, as you know, we understand flying a first world war plane really quite difficult. Actually, um, you know, it requires a degree of training at the least, and quite a lot of effort to stop it just crashing into the ground. Now, there was a, a flight simulator game called Red Baron that had some weird quirks in it. Some of them could potentially be referred to as bugs, but also they had a mode where you could make it slightly easier to fly the plane. So, you know, if you can't, if you're at your keyboard, you don't necessarily need to go through eight hours of flight training before you can enjoy your new computer game that you've paid for out of your own money. And a lot of the audience didn't like that. They said that introducing an easy mode was disrespectful to the historic pilots who'd flown these things, which, I mean, the, the kind of the historian and the kind of the almost the, the, the media studies scholar of me find endlessly fascinating that making something easier is disrespectful to the people who actually had to do it. But at the same time, like the human in me just thinks that's mad. Just a very, very strange standpoint to take that this would be kind of the hill you're willing to die on. But it's because historical computer games, and particularly it seems to afflict First World War computer games more than it does some others, are constantly being kind of tied up with conversations about accuracy or authenticity. Um, is the game accurate? Is it authentic? Is it correct for the time? Now, what a lot of this ends up meaning is paraphernalia or ephemera. Are they wearing the right uniforms? Have they got the right rifles? Uh, you know, are they the right buttons? Are they holding, you know, uh, contextually accurate rations and things like that without necessarily getting into kind of wider historical context or understanding of strategy? Um, and that's what can tie down and bog down First World War games a lot. I refer to it a little bit in uh, my book about it as um, what people actually want is authenticity light, kind of a moderate version of how we think the war was rather than what the reality of what the war was. Because if we were to create an historically accurate First World War game, it would fulfil all of the, the, the concerns that people have before. It would be boring. You're going to spend ages sat in a trench doing nothing. You're going to walk. You're going to dig. You then go and get to spend a few days on leaving Paris. That would be a laugh. 
but then you go back to the trenches again and you kind of sit and you dig and it, because you know as as we know that a lot of the time in the first world war we spent doing not an awful lot then when the battles come you know it's terrifying and exciting in equal measure um and you have and you have action but it's few and far between what people want therefore is a kind of a flavor of the first world war but dressed in period accurate clothing and that can sometimes produce kind of the the pseudo visage of accuracy you know an accurate uniform does not an accurate game produce if you you know if the rest of the game is ahistorical but everyone's wearing period relevant costume it's not a it's not an accurate game just because people are wearing accurate clothing and i think that's one of the issues that first world war games sometimes get caught up in this question is it's a difficult one to answer do games and if they do how do games actually shape understanding and perceptions of the conflict? Is there any evidence that actually people have actually learnt things about the First World War from these games that they wouldn't have got um, from other mediums? I think there is. I think it comes through some of the kind of the element I was I was talking about earlier of being able to tell stories set in the conflict that people wouldn't have heard of. And I think I mean one of the best examples is probably the use of the French mutinies in in Valiant Hearts that has a, a huge impact on kind of the the rest of the game when it comes afterwards now obviously you know as first world war historians first world war scholars we know what the french mutinies are we understand the kind of the role that they play in 1917 and the impact they have on the french army and what comes afterwards there i absolutely refuse to believe that there is any good reason why any normal person would know so by introducing it into a game what you get the opportunity to do is to shock the player to surprise the player give them an element of knowledge that they didn't necessarily have before and then potentially leave the door open for them to go and look at something new outside of the game. So I feel that one of the main benefits of First World War computer games, is, over, certainly over the centenary, has been as a gateway. The opportunity to interact with the First World War in a new setting for a lot of people who probably haven't studied it in depth. I mean, if we take Battlefield 1, I think their, you know, their main audience demographic is probably like 14 to 18 year olds effectively generally in britain and america and certainly in, in regards to how they conceive them probably white boys effectively now some of them will have studied the first world war possibly in english class i don't reckon a lot of the ones in america have um i don't think the first world war appears properly in their curriculum so it's all new it's all an opportunity to interact with something new and then the possibility exists for them to go on and look at you know, go onto the internet or go and find a book or, or, or something like that. Some of it would potentially be made a little bit easier if some of these games were clearer about the fact that they'd used historical consultants or where they were getting some of their information on. I've been working on something about a kind of a, a historiography of First World War computer games to kind of show where the developers get their, their information from. Some of the games are quite upfront about it. There's a game that came out last year um, that was made by the, the creators or some of the creators behind Valiant Hearts. And it's called 1111 Memories Retold. And they consulted with Peter Doyle and Rob Schaefer uh, for bits and pieces of the game. They spoke to me about it and I produced um, information for their kind of the books that went along with uh, the game kind of to, to frame the, the, the game's narrative in the historical context. But 1111 Memories Retold put particularly their stuff with Rob Schaefer and Peter Doyle front and centre for some of their advertising campaigns. They put it, you know, they mentioned it on Twitter. They talked about it in kind of dev diaries and the like to give themselves uh, a historical gravitas. Um, whereas other games have been very reticent about using or admitting that they use historical consultancy, which I find um, a little peculiar. And I think it's just kind of standard computer game development with non-disclosure agreements, not really adapting for the for the wider for the wider opportunity, really. All of that being said, 
as I mentioned earlier, I, these games are reinforcing some stuff that I, we, we might not necessarily want them to reinforce. They have they have issue portraying the Germans not as Nazis. The Second World War reflects backwards on First World War games, and that's a problem, um, particularly for games like um, Battlefield 1 that talk a lot about um, the kind of an idea about shared humanity. So at various points, they say things like, um, you know, I, you know, I was just a human and the guy across the, the, the trench was just a human and we were caught up in this in this big event. But at the same time, they don't let you play as the Germans or as any of the central powers in the single player mode. You can play them in the multiplayer mode, but in the single player campaigns, you never get the opportunity to kind of exist in the role of a central powers soldier. And I find that very peculiar. And I think that the easiest kind of answer for it is that people are worried that it'll feed into a kind of a Second World War Nazi visual of playing the Germans. But that then kind of massively limits the stories that you can tell, and it kind of is massively restrictive on how we understand the Germans and, in fact, how we understand the war. So there is stuff that I would quite like to be kind of to be pushed and to be shifted. That being said, a lot of those issues exist within the historiography or kind of wider popular understandings of the war. I'm sure I'm not alone, again, both yourself and, and and the Western Front Association members, um, you know, hoping that the Centenary would maybe disassemble some myths or maybe shift some of the, the popular views of the First World War. And it did in some cases, but some of them proved incredibly resilient. Um, and because they're incredibly resilient, I think it's probably fair to say that it's not the job of a computer game to shift it. It's the job of historian to shift it. We have to be finding new ways to tell stories of our own to try and change popular understanding. If, you know, if we outsource it to Battlefield 1, then frankly, we kind of deserve what we get because they're going to do whatever they think is going to you know, make the most money and make the most entertaining game. I don't think it helps for us to then throw our hands up in the air afterwards and go, they created a game that had historical ac uh, inaccuracies in it. Well, yeah, of course they did. It's a computer game. What do you want? <laughs> that, I think that's a, that's a kind of a point of tension between historians and computer games. At some point, we're going to have to resolve that you know, we shouldn't expect them to do our job for us. So if there's a slight tension between, obviously, computer games and historians, especially in the sense that a lot of us, us historians, you know, do our PhD and hopefully to go into academia, and we just think, you know, computer games are for kids, like, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I, like me and you. And it's sort of, do do computer games offer a tool, I suppose, in, the, in our context of the First World War, a tool to actually help people learn about history? Uh, yeah, I absolutely think they do. And they do for a variety of reasons. Firstly, because, I mean, I use computer games in my seminar classes when i'm teaching students uh firstly because they find it so kind of unusual and, and kind of exciting to be given the opportunity to play a computer game when they're expecting to you know, sit down and talk about stuff that they kind of throw themselves fully into it but also because they're of a generation that understands the rules of computer games so they understand how a computer game works they understand kind of how you play you don't have to explain how to play a computer game to people and somebody else has already you know created this tool somebody else has already pumped in the money it's completely free particularly ones that are online, if you know, we want to play them and use them in, in classrooms. The, you know, the, the, the hard work and the hard money and the hard labor has already been done. Uh, it just exists as, as something you can use. The other benefit for them is, depending, again, at what point they come out, and even you know, up to ones in the centenary, is you can use them to examine popular memory of the war. So there's a game that I come back to a lot and I get my students to play at various points. It used to exist on the BBC Schools page. Um, so it was an educational game and it was called Trench Warfare, I think. And you played through four missions and you kind of had to select 
the best three tactics to deal with a particular situation. And some of it was kind of related to historical battle. So they, one of them would kind of be the Somme and one of them would kind of be um, Verdun and the like. And then you end up with the final mission, which is nominally set at Passchendaele. And you select your three um, tactics and then you play the battle out. And as is traditional, at the end, it tells you how many men you lost, how much ground you took. But then the game says that the fourth mission cannot be completed. Any general, in brackets, player who attempts to complete this mission will simply be throwing men to their deaths and, you know, frankly, should be ashamed of themselves. And the message is that the First World War can't be won by military means, which I think is fascinating, given the fact that the First World War was won by military means. This concept that fighting the first world war is to lose it effectively and anybody who tries to do these things tries to win it by military means becomes butcher hake that's what the game is saying you have become the evil maniacal self-centered general who's throwing men at a problem without realizing that it's a problem that can't be solved by by dead bodies now that was an educational game and it was out in kind of the 1990s i use that a lot as an opportunity to, for students to understand about modern memory and to understand about kind of concepts, elements of strategy. I mean, the game is, when it comes to its, its tactics and its strategies, awfully ahistorical uh, nonsense um, in, in many ways. But what it also gives you the opportunity to do is challenge your students who, you know, as I said earlier, understand the rules of computer games. They're not used to being told that a game can't be won. So generally, upon being told it can't be won, most of them go, Nah, there must be a way and keep on playing. Well, now they've crossed a very interesting moral line in that they've been told that if they carry on doing this, they're a monster. But because it's a computer game, they refuse to believe that a computer game can't be completed. They carry on playing it. And there you have an interesting kind of playoff between, you know, being judged by a game that basically made you play it in the first place. And it opens up some really super and really interesting opportunities to discuss this with students about, you know, OK, how did tactics work? How did strategies work? How did these battles work? How much actual power did a general have 15 miles behind the line with no radio, no telephone? He's got no idea what's going on at the front because communication doesn't exist in the way that we might hope it does. And also, how can an educational game exist in this way with such an ahistorical message? And all of that is absolutely right for historians to kind of dig into and make use of and use as kind of examinations of popular understandings, popular portraits, but also as, a, as an opportunity to teach people things about how people think about the First World War. Finally, Chris, where can people learn more about your, your work on uh, First World War computer games? Um, I mean, the most obvious uh, starting point is um, I've got a book which is you know, cunningly called The First World War in Computer Games, which is available through Palgrave and through uh, Amazon uh, and the like, which kind of deals with um, First World War computer games at kind of the outbreak of the centenary. It was published in 2015, so it actually comes out slightly before Battlefield 1 was even announced, let alone it was a thing, which is, I mean, I have to admit, it's slightly annoying timing because then Battlefield 1 would have been perfect for inside the book. That being said, the book does actually uh, kind of predict that Battlefield 1 or something like it is going to exist. Um, now, the book itself kind of deals with four areas. It's not a hugely long book, um, and it's kind of designed to, to open up or kind of produce the beginnings of the field. Um, and it deals with kind of landscape, it deals with kind of conflict and death and kind of the Hollywoodness of, of the Second World War versus the First World War. Alongside that, there's other kind of bits and pieces I've got. I've, I've got a, a, an article out in the Historical Journal of Radio, Film and Television, I think, which is called uh, Pixel Lions, uh, which is all about the portrayal of, of the soldier. 
from first world computer games that can often be free to download and sometimes it's sometimes it's like behind a paywall sometimes it's openly free to download so it's worth taking a look on on their website there's a brilliant youtube channel called history respond which deals with um historical computer games and they get historians on to play games alongside them and kind of chat about them and i did uh, an episode with them about battlefield one and you can just kind of find that on, on youtube which was uh, quite good fun there's other kind of bits and pieces out in the world i wrote an article with a really good uh, fellow kind of computer game scholar called andrew chapman uh, sorry adam chapman who i mean people should definitely go and look at his book as well which is all about kind of history and computer games very broadly we did uh, an article together about whether or not through Battlefield 1, the First World War will ever be an acceptable setting for computer games. And that's on a website called The Ontological Geek, um, which is splendidly named. So, yeah, there's, there's kind of bits and pieces out there in the world um, that are kind of accessible to kind of look at about um, elements of kind of First World War computer games and history of computer games. But to be honest, it's a growing field, kind of history and computer games in general. There's um, there's quite a lot out there that people should kind of go and have a look at because not only is is it a growing field, um, there's a particular kind of generation of academic and historians coming through, you know, effectively my age, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger, who grew up with computer games, who don't think they're the preserve of people who live in their parents' basements and like who, who play them, who enjoy them, but now are also kind of interacting with them kind of critically and academically for a variety of studies so there's a, there is a wealth of information out there um, a good starting point for people might be a, a book called playing with the past which helps kind of found elements of historical game studies and is really really interesting and it's got a chapter in it by uh, a guy called andrew wackerfuss um, about first world war flight simulators which is fascinating stuff and really really good chris thank you very much for your time thank you very much for having me again You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>